This is NER Out Loud, a podcast that animates stories and poetry from the New England Review, celebrating the artistic exchange between text and voice. I'm Jeremy Navarro. This is the second episode in the Vermont Writers Series, where NER reaches out to writers in our home state and presents their voices in intimate readings and conversations. Today, we're featuring Jay Perini and Genevieve Plunkett. One of several scenes that hang in my dreams occurred in a pub along the coast near the fishing village of Anstruther. Borges wanted to experience a Scottish pub in its full glory, he said. That's the voice of Jay Perini, doing his best impression of famed Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges. Jay is a poet, novelist, and biographer who teaches at Middlebury College. He was also a founding co-editor of the New England Review, and his most recent book is The Damascus Road, a novel of St. Paul. Today, he'll be reading a short autobiographical piece in which he describes his unexpected friendship with the renowned Borges, a key figure in Argentine and world literature. Here he is reading A Beer with Borges, which was first published in the New England Review. I can smell Borges in my dreams, and I dream about him often. He reeks of age, with the mustiness, the sourness of years, and the odor gives off a peculiar sweetness, too, as if he has smoked ripe old tobacco in a pipe for many decades, although I suspect he didn't. A writer of poems and brief enigmatic stories and provocative essays that were also stories, Borges moved easily between fact and fiction, and his wild inventions became truths. It was all fiction for him, as in the title of his most celebrated volume, Ficciones, first published in the early 40s. Fiction means, in its Latin root word, shaping, and Borges was always shaping realities, even making them. I called him Mr. Borges the first time we met, and he corrected me, just Borges, please. He had been translated by Alastair Reed, the Scottish poet and essayist, who was my mentor and close friend during my seven years in Scotland. Alistair lived at Pilmore Cottage on the edge of the old course in St. Andrews with the view of the North Sea through the kitchen window. I'd met him at the suggestion of my history tutor, Miss Anne Wright. When I told her that I wrote poetry, she said, in which case you should meet Alistair. She phoned him from her study in Hamilton Hall at the University of St. Andrews, where I had weekly tutorials with her in 19th century British history. A stickler for facts, she had me recite the kings and queens again and again. Get it right this time, she would say. The world is built upon facts. It was arranged for me to meet Alistair at the Central Tavern on Market Street the following afternoon. Standing at the bar, talking for two hours or more, Alistair and I became friends at once. He asked me to show him a few poems, and I happened to have a number of samples in my rucksack. After a quick perusal, he invited me to Pilmore for tea a few days later, suggesting that I bring a new poem in rough draft for him to correct, quotation marks, as he put it. The term slightly unnerved me, as I didn't imagine I needed anyone's correction. On the appointed day, I pedaled to his cottage along the west sands on my bicycle through a cold, slantwise drizzle. Gingerly, I put my damp poem on his kitchen table, between mugs of tea and jam pots, and sat beside him. 
Not a word was exchanged between us as he crossed out words and added others with a sharp pencil. He moved stanzas around. A fresh title was applied to the poem with a question mark. Go away and revise it, he said. Come back tomorrow with a new version. He understood my puzzlement and said, Graves did the same for me. It's the only way to learn to write. He told me that he had learned his craft sitting beside Robert Graves in Majorca, where he had gone to work as secretary to the older writer after he left university. He was translating for Graves, who had the commission from Penguin, Lives of the Noble Caesars by Suetonius. The idea was that Alistair would provide a rough draft of the classic work, and Graves would, quote, correct his pages day by day. He had himself, he said, winced to hear that word, correct. He watched with considerable awe, however, as Graves took the work that he had thought beyond reproach and improved it, crossing out gaudy adjectives while putting in stronger nouns, eliminating adverbs, finding stronger verbs. The passive voice disappeared almost completely, and the syntax strengthened. The inner music of each sentence emerged, and the pages sang. Borges is coming next week, said Alistair one day, in an admiring tone that surprised me, as he rarely seemed impressed by anyone. He will be staying for a while. You will learn something. I had never heard of Jorge Luis Borges, and could find nothing of his in the local bookstore. But soon the old writer appeared before me, rumpled, blind, with a huge head and skinny legs. He seemed oddly powerful, however, and sat with his hands folded on his cane. His suit was ill-fitting and out of date with a gold watch chain across his waistcoat. I suspect the suit had been tailored in Argentina probably decades before. It was frayed, cuffed, made of indestructible wool with a flat sheen and moth holes in the sleeves. His soiled white shirt had a high, stiff collar, like something from a photograph from the previous century. I thought of his tie as a palimpsest of many previous meals. His deep voice boomed, beautifully controlled, almost theatrical. The accent was slight. His grandmother had been English, and he had grown up with the language. He read Shakespeare and Wells, Stevenson and Chesterton, Wilde, and any number of obscure poets in English. I adore Chidiok Tichborne, he said to me. Don't you? He could recite long passages of Anglo-Saxon verse from memory. One day Althor asked me to babysit Borges, as he had to go out of town. And I agreed, of course, anything for Alistair, whom I'd come to adore. Borges wanted to see the East Nuke of Fife, he told me, when Alistair was gone. So I borrowed a car from a friend and took off with Borges in a rusty Morris Minor, which I barely knew how to drive. We made an eccentric couple, the elderly blind writer from Argentina and the young American. Neither could imagine the other. One of several scenes that hang in my dreams occurred in a pub along the coast near the fishing village of Anstruther. Borges wanted to experience a Scottish pub in its full glory, he said. Drinking in Scotland is indeed something of a religion, but it's strictly low church. We stopped at a sawdust-floored, concrete-walled pub in the middle of the village, and I recall leading Borges into a basement room, the walls sweating, the place so dark that even a blind man needed help to get around the large wooden tables. Borges asked for a beer, and I brought him a pint of Export, the flat, warm beer that everyone drank in those days. I can see him bending over the glass, both hands around it. He sniffed the foamy head of the brew and approved, stirring it with one finger, which he then licked clean. He took a long, slow drink and smiled. He wiped the foam from his lips on the sleeve of his jacket. The big blank eyes rolled in his head. 
I needed to make conversation and said, Alistair tells me you're a writer. Oh, that, he said. Alistair exaggerates. He's a very good friend. I was unsure of myself now. Have you ever written uh, a novel? Good Lord, no. I write only the smallest of stories, tiny things, some of them only a page or less than a page. I grew very suspicious and asked, um, So you haven't written any novels? No, no, dear boy, he said. But you must know. I have my whole life dreamed of writing a novel. For many decades, I planned to write an epic story of the Pampas. There would be gauchos and whores and so many criminals. It would be a large and panoramic saga of family life over many generations with failed love affairs and incest and spectacular achievements, too. Wars would come and go. There would be fratricide and matricide. The volume would require perhaps a thousand pages to encompass everything I must say. I leaned forward. And what happened? Ah, the novel never came, dear boy. It was so frustrating. And then, after many decades, I woke early one day and went to my desk. There I wrote a one-page review of this great novel, and that satisfied the impulse. That was Jay Perini reading A Beer with Borges. You can read this short memoir online on the New England Review website. While Jay Perini has many books to his name, fiction writer Genevieve Plunkett is just starting out. In fact, the story she's reading from today, from a recent issue of NER, was her first print publication, and it went on to win an O. Henry Prize for short fiction. Since then, she has published more of her fiction in NER, as well as in Willow Springs, Massachusetts Review, Mud Season Review, and Crazy Horse. She currently lives in Bennington, Vermont. Here's Genevieve Plunkett reading from Something for a Young Woman. The shop owner by then knew all about it. The girl's hatred of elbow and stray pieces of hair. How her boyfriend disliked the taste of her lip gloss. How she referred to far too many body parts as it. He knew which details she had made up to appear more experienced, even what she had swept over in an attempt to be coy. He listened to her, as bosses do, with hands folded, wading through her blushes and her flights of qualifiers. The corners of his mouth and eyes remained still. The girl and the shop owner liked to talk. Once they had been talking in the storage room, searching a heap of bubble wrap for a lost piece to a tea set and he had gotten very close to her, blocking the door with his body. She had looked up and met the buttons of his shirt, tugging across his torso, and a flight of nerves had gone up inside her. He had joked that someone might walk in and get the wrong impression, as if life could just be so funny. It had come to this, surely, by the girl's own indiscretion. Not just her candidness, but some kind of postural lingering, something learned but unconscious. She started to spend more time in front of the full-length mirror on the inside of her closet door so that she could see all the way down to her heels, which she raised off the floor. She saw less and less of her boyfriend, and when they spoke, she thought she detected something in his voice, like the hook of suspicion. They broke up two months later, although it had nothing to do with the shop owner. If I were to ask you what your preferences are, the boyfriend asked, what would you tell me? 
The girl told him that he needed to be more specific. Your preferences, he said again. It was an odd word for him to be using, she thought, but before she could answer, he continued, Well, mine are different. People already know. When she went to work the next day, the shop owner was there feeding the wood stove. She told him about the breakup and their strange conversation, and he turned his face to the fire to hide from her, she imagined, whatever satisfaction he could not, for the moment, subdue. I was wondering when you were going to find out, he said. He stayed for the day when he would have usually left her in charge and chopped firewood behind the building, hauling armload after armload inside with his sleeves rolled up past his elbows. It was the sight of the sleeves like that, the meat of his forearms darkened by hair, that made her wonder if something had changed between them and if, perhaps, he was waiting for her to do something about it. There is a desk where she sat in the back by the stove. On one side of it, there is a stack of old magazines, and on the other, a shallow wooden box of loose postcards, mostly photos of old bridges and the fronts of hotels. The middle of the desk was kept clear for the exchange of money, the sliding over of small purchases in the folded paper bag. She didn't know what put it in her head to sit there, some adolescent notion of sexual liberty, but she knew, the instant that he returned and saw her like that, that it was the wrong thing to do. The shop owner dropped his eyes to the side and waited for her to climb down, then handed her the keys and told her to lock up in 30 minutes. She watched him go and heard the triple clatter of the bell above the door. There would be no more shoppers at this time. People did not like to stop roadside after dark, especially not to lurk through the twilight of scuffed velvet and sad lampshades. Still, she waited until closing time. She took the money from the cash register and recorded the profit onto a slip of paper. The drawer, now balanced for the next morning, was locked into the register, and the envelope of cash was placed in a small safe beneath the desk. The next week, the shop owner said that he would be on vacation with his family, and since the girl would be off from school, it was up to her to look after the shop. He assured her in his instructions that there would be enough chopped wood for the fire until he returned. She wondered briefly how she must have appeared on top of the desk like that. She knew better than to worry that he would speak of it, but she also knew that it would always exist, as a small loss on her part. She worked diligently while he was away, even though she was alone and could have easily spent the time reading books or using the phone. She even dusted the stuffed emu that had remained unsold for so long that it had acquired a name, chosen by the girl who worked there before her, who had occasionally been mentioned by the owner with unwavering neutrality. At the end of the day, she locked herself in to count the register, Because the shop owner was not there to collect it, the money began to pile up in the safe. Then one night, the girl unlocked the safe to find the money gone, replaced by a small brown box. For a moment, she feared that they had been robbed overnight, but then she saw that the box had her name written across the top. Allison. Inside, under a sheet of crepe paper, was a necklace with an oval black stone. Formal. Something for a young woman. Allison met the man that would become her husband during the last year of college, then followed him to the city. He was always saying that he had friends there. She didn't know why she was surprised when the friends did, in fact, exist, all together in little compartments over the street. Like the college boyfriend, the friends had been biology students, but they spent a lot of time playing guitars plugged into big amplifiers, which they once accused her of moving two inches to the right based on dust patterns. There had been shouting... The college boyfriend had flown to her aid, his ears turning pink with outrage. She had cried and cried from the commotion, 
The city was making her sick with its fumes, its pockets of hot breath and burnt rubber. She swore that the cupboard smelled like newborn mice. I have this thing where I can't be around vomit, the boyfriend had said the first time it happened and put up his hands. It was the pregnancy that caused them to move back north to be closer to his family. His parents owned a large property with a barn, but you couldn't call it a farm. The horses were old, likely to trot back from the pasture favoring a hoof, and the chickens were slowly disappearing. There was speculation of a fox, as if such a creature in that area needed speculation. Their decision to get married seemed not to rely on whether it was the right choice, but rather on if his relatives in Canada could make it to the wedding, and if it was better to try to hide the belly or wait until after the baby was born. Things usually go back to normal, said the woman who would be her mother-in-law, before the third one at least, and by the fourth you don't care just as long as it isn't another boy. It was a boy. They named the baby after Allison's late grandfather because it seemed like the right thing to do. He was born in January in their own undecorated living room with the rug rolled up so that it would not be stained. It was how the baby's father had been born, same as his brothers, all four of them. Ideal, maybe, in the old family homestead with its hearth and its lambskin throws, but this was a one-story ranch, spare of furniture not fully unpacked. The midwife had needed a pan to collect the placenta, and they found one in a cardboard box next to an unwrapped sushi kit and a ceramic cat with hearts for eyes. Come on, Mama, the midwife had said throughout the labor. Come on, like someone coaxing a stubborn cow. By summer, they were married on his parents' property under a rented arbor. These decisions, the birth, the wedding, as well as others were made with the earnestness of dogs wanting to be good. They painted the nursery yellow because it was the color of the husband's room when he was a boy. She could not dispute this logic, she knew, without weakening the mortar that had fixed together happiness and bumblebee yellow always in his mind, even though, the way she saw it, bumblebees were mostly black. In college, she had played the viola. She had always imagined herself in the symphony, with her straight, narrow back, wearing something thin, dark, and almost glittering. In the city, that may have been possible, but so far north, and now with the child, there were only opportunities in the early and late summer when there were weddings. Her husband's cousin played the cello and knew a wealthy couple who had taken up the violin years ago as an answer to their echoing empty nest. They formed a quartet and met at the cousin's church in the basement, playing Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring between spines of stacked folding chairs. The night before their first performance, she found herself struggling to find something to wear, Something around her middle had changed since the baby, who was now four months old, and there was a veiny tint beneath her eyes. She found the necklace with the black stone in the back of a drawer, still in the box with the crepe paper, and put it on for the first time. The shop owner had never spoken of it, and she had never felt an obligation to wear it for his sake. She had taken it in the way someone might receive a confession, not entirely certain whether power had been granted or taken away. Still, the weight of the stone flat against her skin brought the small pleasure of knowing that she was once something unknown to the people there, to her son and to her husband. The boy grew, healthy and cheerful, and often satisfied to play alone. Allison took advantage of this, retreating to her room to work through a bit of complicated fingering. Sometimes talking to the boy, discussing what color spoon he should use, or whether or not it was a good idea to dip his teddy bear into the bath, left her voice feeling frail, caught in the pitch of adult-to-child deception. Something needed to be purged, and so she would work it through the instrument, 
following an earthy, resonant phrase like walking a trusted path. She worked, too. The husband brought in only so much as a high school science teacher, which had him in fits at the end of the day. Why, he wanted to know, was there always some teenager trying to tell him that whales were not animals? They probably just mean to say that they are not fish, she suggested, even though she knew it would make his eyes clench in mock pain. His fight was wearying, the enemy ever more insidious. It was her husband who got her the tutoring position at the high school's library, which was better than her last job behind the counter at the coffee shop, being looked up and down by the worldly, latte-drinking citizens, scanned by their eyes for general intelligence, sex appeal, usefulness, being asked in so many ways what had gone wrong in her life. Her in-laws took the child during this time, which she was grateful for, even though it depressed her to hear them ask every day, are you a good boy? And to hear them say, watch your footing, be careful, until the anxiety was too much for him and he fell. That, and they wanted to put him on a horse, which she fought outright until they wore her down. It was an old horse, they said, a slow horse. Her husband had ridden it when he was a boy. All the boys had. They saddled the horse on the first warm day in April. The saddle was a Western style, large enough that mother and child could both sit without being crowded. The mother-in-law would ride ahead on her pony, and the big horse would follow. There was nothing to worry about. The husband's family owned acres, stretching into the forest behind the house, but it was no use riding where there weren't any paths, so they followed the neighboring fields. As long as they stayed next to the tree line, where they would not trample the crops, it was fine. Allison felt her shoulders relax. If she closed her eyes, she could feel down through the trunk of the animal beneath her, down to the planting of each giant hoof. A tractor, said the boy as they rounded a line of trees. He was excited to see a piece of machinery, like a familiar face in the wilderness. It was parked at the far tree line by a woodpile. Allison could make out the form of a man, carrying out a repeated swaying motion with his body. As they approached, it was clear that the man was taking wood from the pile and throwing it into the back of a four-wheeler. Every time a log would crash into the bed, the sound would bounce off the side of the tractor, doubling up an echo. As they passed, the man threw in another log with a crash, causing the mother-in-law's mare to bounce in annoyance, firing a little blast of warning from under her tail. In response, the big gelding buckled at the knees, then danced from side to side before leaping forward at a full gallop. The reins fell from Allison's hands. The boy shifted to the side, and at the same time, she had all the time in the world to think of what to do. There was no hope of stopping, so she kicked off her stirrups, hugged the boy's arms to his body, and let herself roll off the side so that she would hit the ground with her back, her body a cushion for his. It was so very easy to maneuver. She felt like she could laugh. The ground hit, and, as the air burst from her lungs, she had a clear sense of deja vu, accompanied by a thought. This is where it happens. It has always been right here. It was as if she and the boy had taken the fall over and over again, recycled throughout eternity. Her breath returned. The child struggled to free himself from her arms so he could watch the big horse thunder back to the barn, kicking up bits of horseshoe-shaped mud along the way. He was unharmed, unconcerned even. No one, for that matter, seemed alarmed. The mother-in-law, in pursuit of the runaway horse, could be heard whooping its name from the next field over. The man at the woodpile, who'd seen the fall, did not slow his swinging arms, nor did he call off his dog when it went to investigate the two figures on the ground. 
The dog licked the boy with a wet muzzle, pushing its insistent face back into them, no matter how Allison held out her arm. They did not call it an accident. There was a lesson to be learned for the boy. He'll have to get back on sooner than later, said the father-in-law. We wouldn't want him to develop a fear. But that is just what Allison wanted, to come to the edge of a cliff and to back away, preferably on hands and knees, to see a rabid animal and to barricade the doors, call the fire department. They told her she was worrying too much. The runaway horse had been found after the incident, standing square in his stall, eyes half closed. Just a big marshmallow, they said, a teddy bear. We'll just put the boy on his back while the horse grazes in the field, as if that were somehow safer. They lifted him by the armpits, red-faced and kicking, onto the back of the horse, who chewed, drooling gobs of green saliva. There, said the in-laws, with some breathlessness, now he can get down. Allison watched the boy run back into the house, then sat on an overturned feed tub by the pasture fence. She wondered why everything was wrong. Why she couldn't just be thankful that everyone was alive, that bombs were not falling from the sky. A year later, she found herself separating from her husband. There had not been an affair, or even an argument. It was just that he had left for a long weekend to attend a job training, and she had not wanted him to come back. It was the anticipation of his face, drawn in fatigue and pained by private failures, the dirty swill of his eyes scanning the kitchen, the living room, looking to see what had changed while he was gone or what still had not been done. The training was for science teachers, kindergarten through 12th grade. It was held somewhere in the Adirondacks at a state park in a small concrete building filled with beaver pelts, animal scat references, and cicada casings. The teachers slept in cabins and took cold showers in the outbuildings in their flip-flops. We learned how to dissect owl pellets today, the husband said over the phone. You know what they are, right? Tell me what you think they are. She had been about to throw a basket of laundry into the washing machine, but set it down, standing over its armpit smells, the acrid shadow of his pillowcase that she'd washed twice already since he'd left. She sighed. It's all the mouse parts that the owl can't swallow. Well, he said. The point is that you didn't say owl poop, which is what half the people here said. Half. Can you believe it? No. She gave the basket a nudge, and it slid almost the entire way down the basement stairs before it flipped and bounced to the bottom. She knew that the stain on his pillowcase wasn't really a stain, just the place where his head ground into the pillow at night, the one place in the house that would always smell most like him and would always remind her of a thumbprint in cheese. He was upset to hear that she wanted to leave, but not as upset as she thought he would be. He told her to take the child and move to her hometown, only two hours away by car, he was certain that she would want to come back after some time alone. He would send her money. He would tell his parents that she was going to spend time with a sick family member so that they would not think poorly of her. Everything would be fine. By the time they were finished discussing it, she was not entirely sure that the separation had not, in fact, been his plan all along. Her parents' house still had the aluminum swing set in the backyard from when she was a girl, with the same slide always dappled by the repetition of rain and soil. Their rooms were made up for them, complete with a layer cake of towels laid out on the bed like a hotel. The boy was adored with quiet gratitude. Her decision was never questioned. She found work at the elementary school, taking over temporarily for a music teacher who was having a baby. There was a lot of cardboard and glitter and toilet paper tubes stopped at the ends and filled with beans for shaking. 
There was no epiphany, no rush of dark pleasure now that she was on her own, just I'm little teapot during the day and dinners at home of macaroni and cheese with little cubes of hot dog. When she first took out the viola, it sounded dry from travel. Her mind would drift, her bowing arm would become heavy. There were certain steps to be taken, she knew, for moving on, like chopping her hair, doing something drastic but not too ugly. Her mother urged her to meet people, but she would not. She was comfortable for the time living in the blind spot off the grid of where she had pictured her life heading. And then one day in February, a change occurred, marked by a dream. It was one of those dreams where very little happens, but something is injected under the surface into the commotion of life drugged by sleep. When she woke, she remained in bed for some time, seeing his face in the rumpled darkness while falling snow and ice hissed against her window. In the morning, she was still stirred, but with an added dint of sadness. Her husband had called the night before, like he did every Sunday, to ask about the boy and to inquire nervously about her plans. He told her that he hadn't felt like seeing anyone else, meaning women, and then waited a long time for her to respond. He talked about his students. He wanted to know if she had heard that narwhals were in fact mythical. Did she know that brown cows can only make chocolate milk? She had tried to imagine that this would be the last time that they would ever speak, even though she knew he would call again next week. She had imagined what it would be like to see his traits emerge in the boy as he grew, traits that she may or may not have taken for granted in the past. But there had only been weightless, drifting apathy, like the fatigue from artificial light. She went outside to clear the snow from her car and then work on the layer of ice on the windshield wipers. You could sometimes forget that there was something to be uncovered once you got to chipping and scraping, as if the point were to just keep working until you hit the ground. Exhausted, she opened the door and sat, freezing behind the wheel. She looked at the gray sky, the corroded white of birch trees through the hole of visibility that she had cleared on her windshield. In her dream, the shop owner had been sitting behind the desk by the open stove, the same large desk that had been there when she worked for him years ago. He was writing in some kind of financial log with his sleeves rolled up and his arms glowing in the light from the burning coals. He would not look at her. He would not speak to her. She turned the key in the ignition and was blasted by cold air. Inside the house, she knew that her mother would be making coffee while the boy ate his cereal in the kitchen, scrutinizing the cardboard box. Why he could never put that kind of concentration into a real book, she would never know. If she left now, they may not even notice that she was gone. That was Genevieve Plunkett reading from her story, Something for a Young Woman. You can read the full story online at the New England Review website. We hope you enjoyed listening to these Vermont authors reading from their own work. Come back soon for more episodes of NER Out Loud and the Vermont Writer Series. If you liked what you heard, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people can find the show. For more poems, stories, and essays, visit the New England Review online and subscribe. This episode of NER Out Loud was recorded in Middlebury, Vermont. Our featured authors were Jay Perini and Genevieve Plunkett. NER Out Loud is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College and Oratory Now. Our executive producers are Carolyn Keebler and Dana Yetten. This episode was produced and edited by me, Jeremy Navarro. 
Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth, and special thanks go out to Sam Martin and Juliet Luini. Thanks again for listening, and come back soon for more NER Out Loud. <laughs>